Today's reading comes from the book of Revelations, chapter 21, verse 9 through chapter 22, verse 5. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like Jasper, clear, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of 12 tribes of Israel. They were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, and three gates to the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who had talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 sada in length and as wide as as high as it is long. The angel measured the walls using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, the city pure of gold and as pure as glass. The foundations of the cities were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agat, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth tobaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of one single pearl. The great city of the city of gold was as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its lights, and the kings of the earth will bring the splendor onto it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does not want a shameful, excuse me, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the land's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great city of the, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing the 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp, of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them the light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God. Thanks, Barry, for tackling all those precious stones. That was a mouthful. A few years ago, there was a, a fad, a genre of books about people going to heaven. 
people dying and, and seeing Jesus and being transported to heaven and coming back to tell the tale, being resuscitated and coming back. Um, you probably even have some of these books on your shelves, some of you. Well, um, some of these authors later fessed up that they had made up their stories or, or embellished the details. I'm not discounting them all, but the good news is we, we don't need books like that to understand and to know what heaven will be like, because we have another glimpse of heaven, a, a vision of heaven that the apostle John was given that's for us in the book of Revelation. Now, I just have to say, I'm excited to preach today. We're at the, the very end, the last stop in our Doctrines for Life series. And the last two weeks have been pretty difficult subjects, the final judgment and hell. So I hope that today is a bomb for your soul. I hope that hearing uh, about heaven will, will fill you with hope and with joy. Now, that's why this vision was given to John, to give people who were suffering under persecution. The Christians reading this letter in the first century were undergoing terrible um, oppression and persecution, losing their homes, their families, their lives. And this vision of heaven would have given them such courage and, and such longing for this place. Now, we, we don't often long for heaven, I think. Sometimes that's because um, life is pretty good here and now. And um, we don't feel like we need the joys of heaven to look forward to. We, we're pretty healthy and, and rich and happy. Some of us don't long for heaven because, quite frankly, we think it's boring. We imagine sitting on a cloud all day and, and floating around as some spirit. And who would want to do that? Right? What are we going to do for eternity in heaven? For, for some people, that idea is even scary. Well, I hope this sermon cures us of those way of, ways of thinking. Because this glimpse of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22 um, it shows us that heaven is worth longing for. Heaven is worth longing for. Some of the details can be confusing in this vision, but when we understand them, I believe we'll see that heaven is worth longing for. And so I want to share three reasons from this passage that, that heaven is worth longing for. Number one, because of where it will be. Two, because of who will be there. And three, because of what we will do. So where it will be, who will be there, and what we will do. Now as we get started, um, I do invite you to open your Bibles if you have them, or open your phones to Revelation chapter 21, starting in the ninth verse. We do have to know that this is full of symbolic language. Think of trying to explain what a sunset looks like to a blind man who's never seen color, never seen shapes. How, how would you explain that? 
Well, in a similar way, John, the Lord through John is trying to, to activate our imagination and explain to us something that is unexplainable. And so they use symbolic metaphorical language. I mean, it's not real. It means that this is a way that we can understand that we can get a mental picture. So, so where will heaven be? Number one, let's read verses nine and 10. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. Who's the bride? That's us, the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So first question, where's heaven? Up in the clouds, away beyond the blue, the great by and by, the castle in the clouds? No. Heaven comes down to earth. The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God to us. John has already said before he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And now heaven is here. Heaven is here. So we don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes to us. There are a handful of verses in the Bible that talk about um, the in-between time between our physical death and Christ's return when um, our in some way, shape, or form with Jesus. You know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, but that's not the end game. That's not heaven. That's the in-between time. Heaven, what we think of, is when the dead are raised. Jesus comes back, and, and the new heaven and the new earth is here. It's, a, it's an embodied, transformed, physical existence. Heaven is here. I mean, that's good news as we look around and, and see the beautiful creation God has made. Who would want to trade this for sitting on a cloud? This is so wonderful. And the good news is we don't have to trade this for a disembodied spiritual existence because heaven will be here. And in fact, the new earth, I can only imagine, will be just even more wonderful than this. Can you imagine creation more wonderful than this one? Well, that's what it will be. And to me, that is a future worth longing for. Now, the, the future physical new earth will be different in some important ways. John talks about there being no moon, no sun, no night, right? So different in ways that we can't quite understand, real and physical and, and here nonetheless. And that, that to me is worth longing for. Number two, who will be in it? Who will be in heaven? Everything about this vision is telling us that heaven will be occupied by God and his people. 
John spends a long time elaborating on the grandeur of this new Jerusalem with all the, you know, the, the precious stones on the foundations and the gates made out of a single pearl and the gold paved streets. Don't fixate on those details and miss the forest for the trees. What John is telling us is this is a perfect, glorious place radiating with the glory of God. He, he says that in verse 11, it's shown with the glory of God. Everything about this vision screams, this is God's home. Did you catch the dimensions of the city? There's something interesting going on there. Because even the dimensions of the city proclaim that this is God's home. Any, any Bible trivia nerds out here? So John said it was 12,000 stadia, uh, long, wide, and high. That's about 1,500 miles wide. What shape is that? It's a cube. It's a cube. Now, this is, again, this is symbolic language. It's hard to imagine a city that is 1,500 miles wide, long, and high. It could be, but it's probably symbolic, but there's something else in the Bible that was shaped like a cube. Think back to Solomon's temple. You can read about it in Kings chapter six, the temple that Solomon built for God. There was a cube shaped structure in that temple called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, the innermost part of the temple where God's very presence was said to dwell. And, and that place was so restricted, so guarded, because, because a holy God is, is dangerous to sinners. Only one priest could go in that cube one day of every year on the Day of Atonement to atone for Israel's sins. But do you see what, what John is saying? The whole city is the most holy place. The whole city is filled with God's presence. God's presence is everywhere. The, the, the most intimate place of, of contact on earth, the Holy of Holies, is now everything and everywhere. And John says, I did not see a temple in that city, verse 22, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It's no longer is there a special place to meet with God. God is, God is all and in all. In verse 20, uh, sorry, in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, John says, The throne of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. During the pandemic, we've all had to resort to calling grandma on FaceTime or even our parents, talking on the phone, looking through screens. How much better it is to be face to face with someone, you know, to give them a hug, to, to see them in the flesh. That's what John is saying. We're going we're gonna to see Jesus face to face. Face to face. Can you imagine being able to just walk up 
to Jesus and, and receive a hug from him or talk to him or, or sing him a song or bring him something you made for him to enjoy. That's what will make heaven heavenly is the presence of our Lord, presence of God. If you can imagine heaven without Jesus, you know, all the people you love and all the fun things to do, but without Jesus, that's not heaven. The presence of him, the presence of Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. I know that many times when we think about heaven, our first thought is, oh, it'll be so wonderful to see mom or to see my spouse or even I wonder if my dog spot will be there <laughs> right the bible doesn't doesn't talk about that stuff doesn't answer those questions i think the reason is because because nothing compares to the the life-giving soul-satisfying perfect love presence of god Everything we could possibly want or enjoy comes from him anyway. And now we'll be with him face to face. That's worth longing for. That's worth longing for. Well, it's also important to note who John says will not be there. Verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When I was in college, for a week every May after finals, I would go to a, a camp for college Christian leaders. Uh, it was in Saranac Lake, and about 200 Christian college kids from New York and New Jersey would gather there. Now, um, where I went to college, um, it was kind of lonely being a Christian. Um, you'd walk the halls of the dorms on Saturday or Sunday morning and you'd smell, you know, a stale beer and sometimes vomit and pot smoke and um, uh, people would, would, girls and guys would hook up very casually all the time, sometimes not very privately. Um, it felt lonely to be a Christian. Even in class, sometimes um, the Bible and faith in Jesus was, was sneered at. But when I got to that camp with all these other believers with whom we, I, would, I would feast and worship and pray and study and, and play frisbee golf and swim and, and play guitar and do all these things, that was like heaven on earth people who loved the Lord, people who were full of love for others. That's, that's what heaven will be like. Where, where all the, the goodness of relationships will be there and none of the things that spoil them, none of the, the evils that we do to each other. Only perfect, perfected people, I should say. The home of the redeemed. Can you imagine that? That is worth longing for. Well, finally, 
What will we do in heaven? What will we do for eternity? I hope you're starting to get the picture of what heaven might be like. Um, but let's, let's talk about what we will do. And I have to admit, John only gives us a few tantalizing hints. But I think this is such a question for us that I want to try to, to, to follow up on these. You may have heard it said that heaven will be a never-ending worship service, right? Well, no matter how much of a church person you are, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and we're still singing the same song, you might be a little bored, <laughs> right? Uh, the good news is there will be a lot more to do than sing worship songs. So let's look more closely at verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So it's completely safe, he's saying. And listen to this. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What is John saying here? The, the kings of the earth are bringing the splendor of the nations into the new Jerusalem. The glory and honor of all peoples are coming into this city. What is the glory and honor of the nations? What is it? Well, it could be, you know, the national treasure of each, of each country, but I think there's more going on here. In the Bible, the splendor of the nations is their cultures, their languages, the things they have invented and created and done as people, the best things they have produced in their cultures. So just imagine for a minute, what it might look like to see all the best of human cultures proceeding into the New Jerusalem. Here's this huge parade of people, miles long. Here, here comes the float full of every country's artwork. Michelangelo and Picasso and Da Vinci and, and calligraphy from Arabia and photography and film. You know, that takes a year to go by. And then Come the dancers, the ballerinas, and the tap dancers, and line dancers, and African dancers in grass skirts. And then the musicians. Orchestras play Mozart symphonies, and choirs sing Bach oratorios. And there's, there's bluegrass bands, and jazz combos, and all the best music of human culture. And of course, gospel choirs leading the way. And then there's all the literature. There's all the best writers of history and their works coming into the city, Jane Austen and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and, and Seamus Haney and all of the, the best writers. And then maybe the agriculture procession, procession with Holstein cows and Macintosh apples and cheddar cheese and merino wool. And then there's the science floats with 
all the best works of astronomy and physics and microbiology and chemistry and, and genetics, all finally giving praise to their creator. And then of course, there's food. All the best cuisine from every culture in the world, French pastries, Swiss chocolates, Italian espressos, Chinese dumplings, Maine lobster rolls, Mexican burritos. Maybe Vermont will have a little float with cream, maple cream pies. And what else is Vermont known for? I mean, you get the picture. Oh, of course, the sports, the baseball, like the best baseball teams and soccer and, and rugby and, and sumo wrestling and, and hockey. I mean, does it surprise you to imagine this in heaven? What else would happen to all that humans have done and created? Heaven is not the, the, the removal and the of human culture, but the fulfillment of it, the redemption of it. And so all of these things that humans have done that are good will finally be brought into the new Jerusalem all for the glory of God and for the enjoyment of God's people. That's worth longing for. That's worth longing for. Heaven will not be boring. I can assure you that. There will be much to savor, to enjoy, to learn. But, but it goes even beyond this. The last verse of the passage says, they, that is the, the servants of Christ, the people in heaven, they will reign forever. They will reign forever. What does that mean? Are we going to be sitting on thrones holding scepters forever? Mm -mm. He's talking about how the redeemed of humanity, God's people, will do what we were created to do. If you go back to page one of the Bible, God says to human beings, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over creation, reign, rule. That is to say, things, work the land, um, um, take care of the earth, um, rule over animals, create things. There's human culture with, with cities and governments and civilizations and art and all that stuff. Well, that happened only partially in, in this creation and always tainted with sin, always broken. Our ruling and reigning often turned into um, um, violence and oppression and selfishness. But in the new creation, we will finally rule over the world as we were intended to. That means there will be infinitely more left to invent and create, to, to discover, to understand. There will be more and better quilts to sew and better engines to rebuild, more and better animals to take care of, and photographs to take, and books to write, and songs to sing, all in praise of the Creator, in praise of Jesus. Isn't that something worth longing for? Amen. I hope that this little glimpse of heaven is helping you to long 
for heaven. And I wonder what it would actually look like in our lives to long for heaven. Think of something coming up in your life that you can't wait for. Maybe it's um, a family reunion or a family vacation or even Christmas. You have it circled on your calendar, hanging up in the kitchen. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, at the end of your calendar of life is heaven. And the pages just keep turning forever and ever. Amen. Full of good stuff. Better than anything you could hope for here and now. So, so as we go through life, we need to keep that date circled in our minds. We need to look forward and long for heaven. When life is hard, when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you're, when you're lonely, remember what is to come. Keep up, keep up the life of faith. Keep following Jesus because heaven is coming. But just as important, if not more, when life is going well, when you're happy and healthy, don't let that fool you into making a heaven on earth for yourself and focusing so much on the pleasures of this world that you forget Jesus. I'd say that's even more of a risk. On your horizon, keep that calendar page open. Stay faithful to Jesus and set your sights on the kingdom that is to come. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, the characters that the children finally arrive in Aslan's country. Aslan is the, the symbol for Christ in these books. Before, but I want to share it in this sermon as I close today. The end of the, the end of this book series when they arrive in Aslan's country. And as he spoke. He looked no longer to them like a lion, but things then began to happen after that that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they lived after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before.